We'll get to the show in a moment, but first, I've got Avi Shevich joining me. Avi is the Brewing R&D Research Associate for Lalamond, which is a sponsor of the program. And today, we're talking about Lalbrew Farmhouse, the company's hybrid Saison-style yeast. I start by asking Avi to discuss how the product came to be. So one of our popular strains, or one of our popular products right now is the Belle Saison. It's a traditional Saison yeast that was um, uh, isolated from from samples uh, from the traditional Saison brewing region. And one of the great things about this yeast is that it does provide a a very authentic uh, Saison experience for brewers. Uh, However, one of the downsides is these yeasts tend to be STA positive. This could be something that brewers potentially don't want in their brewery. What the farmhouse saison is, it's an alternative to the bell saison. It's slightly different. It has a different aroma profile than bell saison under similar conditions. However, it still does an excellent job of replicating that saison experience with the major advantage of one having reduced SO2 and H2S production and it's not STA positive. It is completely STA negative. So it'll only use glucose, maltose, and maltotriose. We're excited to have Lalamon Brewing as a sponsor of the Beer Edge podcast, and Avi will be joining us again at the bottom of the program. But in the meantime, I'd invite folks to check out Lalamon's website at lalamonbrewing.com for more information on how it can help your business. That's L-A-L-L-E-M-A-N-D brewing.com. Welcome to the Beer Edge podcast. I'm Andy Crouch. And this week, I'm excited to host Melissa Cole. It's never boring with Melissa The first time we met remains a bit of a fever dream for me. We get into it in the first few minutes of this interview, and in character, Melissa manages to recall micro-details of what we ate and drank that night six years ago. For me, most of it's a bit of a blur. Melissa's work is similarly colorful and a bit hard to characterize. She appears to have transcended the role of journalist and become somewhat of a presenter, as the Brits might say. She's an accomplished author of several excellent books, a brewer of many collaboration beers, a widely respected international judge, a frequent television guest offering both piercing and critical social commentary related to beer, but she's also an accomplished speaker about food and tasting. Melissa is also a powerful advocate for classic styles and British beer excellence, but most importantly, for equality and calling out bad behavior by boorish breweries. Recently, she's been in the media quite a bit for her continuing criticism of BrewDog and its corporate culture, its treatment of workers and females. And we'll get into the subject in detail in the second part of our conversation next week. But for this week, we discuss Melissa's background, her books, and her secrets to pairing beer and food. We conducted this interview via Zoom, and I spent most of the session with a huge smile on my face or laughing. Next week's episode, concluding our interview with Melissa, will be a little bit more serious. But for this week... Let's get to the first half of my conversation with the indefatigable Melissa Cole. I'm a criminal defense attorney by trade, in addition to what I do in the beer world. And one of the big concepts in criminal defense in recent years has been the idea of false memories. Um, And so I have a memory of an experience with you that may or may not be true. Were we once invited during a craft brewers conference in Philadelphia into the apartment or Airbnb of a brewer who had invited us all to dinner. And then we ended up, I don't know if he made us dinner or did we end up in a Mexican restaurant with a couple of cases of beer wearing, wearing hats? That was Chris. We went to, yeah, we went to their Airbnb first. 
And then uh, with my pal Ben, who was taking all the photos. Yes. And then we uh, then he'd arranged with a uh, Mexican restaurant around the corner that we could bring in like just cases and cases of beer because I think I think it might even have been BYO. Yeah, and there was um, only there was only I think like six of us, but we ended up showing up with like three cases of beer, which I don't we didn't really leave with any. <laughs> no, I don't under yeah, I don't even really. And you know, the whole time we kept looking at each other, like, what is happening here? How did this keep going? I know, but it was. It but was I, I mean, to be honest, I mean, I, I kind of come to expect crazy stuff like that, so it doesn't really overly kind of phase me. I mean, the food was amazing, and this is sort of why I bring this up, which is that when I talk to other folks about Melissa these are the kind of stories that I hear and it's, I get to, you know, whether it's, oh it's about, uh, you know, friendly, fr- you know, overly friendly folks in, in Spain uh, with John Hall or just other tales. It just seems like, it seems like shenanigans and nonsense kind of follow you around a little bit. I, I worry that I am a common denominator in absolute <laughs> chaos. I, I have an agent for chaos. I, I'm, I'm a big believer in just going with stuff, you know, it's like, it's, as long as everybody's having a good time, nobody's upset, nobody's getting hurt, you're not you're not doing anything mm-hmm. wholly illegal. Um, you know, boundaries can be blurred. Um, but you know, I, I always I always think that the you regret more about the stuff that you didn't do than what you did, right? And I know that's mm-hmm. an old trope, but actually, I've also I also you know one of the things that drew me to being a journalist is that I'm fascinated by people. Yeah. And I love being around people doing different things, doing crazy, doing crazy stuff, having a laugh, getting to know new people, getting to know new environments, getting to know new cultures, new whatever it is. I'm just eternally nosy about it. And, and my general feeling is, is that if you don't just go with it. And also, frankly, I just love following where a good time goes because sure. there's nothing there's nothing better than that feeling of going and doing something that you've you've got very little like handle on the wheel of you're not mm-hmm. you're not out of control it's not out of your control at any point you know I can pick up my phone I can get an uber I can right, you know, kick right, somebody right. in the kick somebody in the nuts and walk run away <laughs> but you know I I, I kind of I'm, I'm, I'm always you know sort of aware of what's going on but the main thing is is that it's just like Ah, screw it. What's, what's the worst that could happen? The answer sometimes is very, very bad things, but most of the time it's very, very good. So it's, it does always seem like a good story with you. And, and, and I am someone as a journalist as well, who it's, it's, I love people. I love, I love hearing their stories and, and having these experiences. Um, but you were, you know, you were in the United States for, you know, that craft brewers conference and you're someone who has judged around the world at these events, but how did you come to, to start working in, you know, in covering and writing about the beer industry? It was my first job out of university. I'd been really, really um, demoralized um, by my course, by the university experience. Um, some sort of weird stuff happened, getting involved with the students' union, got a bit hairy with some um, um, religious fanatics. That was fun. Um, and uh, when I say fun, horrendous. <laughs> um, and uh, so I... I just and I just felt like I hadn't been fully supported. I'm sure, actually, if I look back on it, I, I was just probably a complete nightmare to deal with. Um, but 
I I really felt also that I didn't really I I went backwards at university I wasn't writing as much I I learned some of the nuts and bolts sure but we our equipment was so outdated that for example we were doing newspaper design on PCs mm-hmm. nobody used a PC at that point it was all Mac um and we'd be using a second tier program instead of you know Adobe yep. programs and and actually I mean my god I know I was at university 20 plus years ago now but also we were literally using reel-to-reel tape I, I, as someone who did television and radio in college, remember slicing tape, you know, with a razor blade, taping it back together. It's, it's, it's ridiculous. And I hate to age myself that way, but yes. Uh, But, but, but I mean, digital was there. So it was, it was madness. Yep. So we did. And also the, the very fact that, that when my mum, who was very kindly, was cleaning out bags of laundry when I went home and found a whole thing of razor blades, immediately thought that <laughs> I was about to, you know, start carving shapes into myself. Um, it was like, it, I really had to, like, she really freaked the hell out. It was quite, I guess she was, a, she was a nurse, so I can see how certain <laughs> things can be a bit of a trigger for her. I was just like, mum, the only damage I'm doing is to that finger right there. Yeah. <laughs> and she was like, oh, what have you been doing? It's like, it's really hard to cut those tapes and that, and stick them all back together without always nicking yourself. <laughs> anyway, so, so I wasn't going to spend five pounds on, on one of those rubber thingies for your finger when five pounds could buy me five pints. <laughs> <laughs> so what was you, what, what did you end up as your first gig? So, so my first, so here we go. You know, you said with me, everything's a bit of a story. This is a good one. <laughs> um, uh, so I had gone to a temping agency because obviously one of the things I could do was type and do shorthand. So quite, quite desirable um, things in those days. And uh, so I ended up doing temping, but then also they realized I had sort of thing that I could do photo manipulation and all the basic DTP and all that kind of thing. And so they said, oh, we've got this great space for you in the production department of the pub trade paper, the licensee and morning advertiser, as it was called then. At that time, it was twice weekly. Um, it was based in Slough. It's not a glamorous place. Um, and, uh, but it was very close to where my parents were because I was back home, like most students, skin in need of a job. So I uh, went and worked there. And the minute I got in there, it was, like it, it was proper. They were all old, proper old school, like hacks apart from one young idealistic guy um, who was clearly up against it with this bunch. I mean, they were, you had, you, you know, you had Mike Bennett, who was my mentor, who like big florid nose, massive stomach, racing post on his desk, knew everybody, had a spike that was basically mulch at the bottom. Um, it was Keith who was uh, the, the who was the uh, he was the um, the editor who was uh, a recovering alcoholic and just wanted to do his job, get in, get out, get done. But he was intrinsically a very kind guy. There was Garth, who remains my friend to this day, who had been there since time memorial, was still there up until his retirement, even though they'd been bought out a number of times. And there were a couple of old subs who were the most curmudgeonly bastards you'd ever see in the world. One of whom really liked to go um, like dumpster diving oh. um, and bring people presents. So that was always entertaining. 
uh, like like one of their one of the faces of of uh, the the young the young sub who was just clearly already ground down when he got handed a pair of trousers. So, Look, Paul, they're nearly new as he's scratching <laughs> brick dust off of them. Anyway, so and then there was a you know a couple of other people. So every time Keith went out for a cigarette, the editor, I was, I was out there. I was I was on his own. It's like. I've got a degree in journalism, you know, I've got a degree in journalism, you know, I've got a degree in journalism, you know, because I was thinking, nobody told me I could write about pubs for a living. <laughs> I found my spiritual home. Um, so anyway, I kept on getting my temping contract renewed and I got moved up to doing some some stuff like transcribing the legal column. Um, but the interesting thing about the legal column was that this guy called Peter Coulson, he had um, a typewriter where two of the keys didn't work. So sometimes you had to make a guess, which when you're tran- when you're transcribing a legal column doesn't feel like a great thing to be no, doing. No, that doesn't sound great. No, and Peter would never pick up the phone. So anyway, all these things happening. So then one day there's sort of quite a lot of kerfuffle going on for a few weeks. And then one day I got called in by the editor and the news editor. And they were super stern with me. And I'd always got on well with, or I thought I'd got on well with everybody. I was like big wide eyes. They were like, so, Melissa, we know you've got a degree in journalism. And they were so stern with me. And I was all I could think, because you know what your paranoid, you know, 20 something brain does. It's like, oh my God that legal column when I couldn't get hold of Peter and I, I, I typed the P instead of the T and oh my God, we're getting sued and everybody's <laughs> going to lose their jobs because you know, that's a stupid paranoid brain sure. you have, right? And also I really wanted them to give me a job. But anyway, so they said, so we'd like to offer you a job. I promptly burst into tears. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, oh my God. And then promptly said to two, like one bloke in his like, late 50s and one bloke in his in his early 40s maybe it's like I'm so sorry I'm really hormonal I'm due on to compound it <laughs> and then and then it was like oh anyway so so once I once I, then I got to sit in the giggles and then they started laughing and they were like do you want to go and sort yourself out and then and then come back and be like thank you very much anyway I got myself back together and I said well what's happened why but you said you were saying that there wasn't a space but I haven't seen so-and-so for a while it's like yes he won't be coming back I was like, okay. And I said, right, we're telling you in the in this meeting room, in these four walls, you cannot tell anybody else in the in the building. It's like, right. I said, um, yeah. So you know, we sent him to cover a licensed victualers conference in in um in uh, uh Wales a few weeks ago. So licensed victualers is kind of like the shriners mm-hmm. um in 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 a way. For, it's kind of the Shriners or the round table for the pub industry. Right, okay. I said, yeah, he never came back. And I was like, oh, is anything wrong? He said, well, sort of, yes. We obviously were liaising with the police a little bit because his wife was concerned. And then when the police couldn't find any form of foul play, his wife hired a, a, a private detective. I said, yeah. Yeah, he found him. He found him two days ago, holed up in a in a place in in North Wales with a stripper. <laughs> His wife and three children have been left behind. Oh, so so we've we've sacked him in absentia for gross misconduct. <laughs> and that's how I got my job. <laughs>
Oh God, that's I think by far the best intro story <laughs> we've had on this pod. <laughs> Thank you there for you that. <laughs> uh, where to go from that? Um, mm. So, you know, for those listening, Melissa is a legitimate writer, journalist, and uh, you know, <laughs> and as you know, she has a degree in journalism. So uh, she's gone on to you. You've written books and articles and all sorts of different things. Yeah. What do you think? What do you think your focus is? What do you think? You know, what is your voice? Where do you, you know, where, what would people, you know, how would people describe the sort of work that you do? And I'm sure there are various people who may say various things and so we'll get into that, but. Uh... <laughs> yeah. Um, none of them very nice. I imagine. Um, I, well, I mean, I th- do you know what the sad thing is? is that the things I'm most proud of are definitely, let me tell you about beer, which, ha- which, just hit the market, particularly in the UK and in Brazil, funnily enough, hmm. at exactly the right time for a lot of young women to actually be introduced to burgeoning craft beer market. And that I know that that book has made a difference to not just not just young women, but in particular young women mm-hmm. um, in the beer industry, just to see a woman who had written a book that was authoritative but accessible meant the world to them um and that that means everything to me and then obviously trying to trying to maybe not lead by example because nobody should use me as an example but um (laughs) but but trying to but basically trying to be a bit of a um a snowplow um to make sure that that women haven't experienced a lot of the crap that I have yeah. So that's that sort of that those that that things and beer beer kitchen as well. I'm so so proud of beer kitchen and I actually think that a lot of the work that I've done on cooking with beer and beer and food pairing is so much more scientifically in depth than has previously been done in terms of why things work, why a German wheat beer seems to elevate. Um, tomato sauces for example mm-hmm. it's because they've got common volatile thiols and you know it's, it's like it's like why did Nelson Sauvignon hops smell like Nelson Sauvignon bowl grapes mm-hmm. and things like that and I think that that's you know I think that that, that I'm so proud of it I, I've wanted to that that is the book I wanted to write I have no you know I wouldn't have done it any other way so I'm so so pleased about that um and I think I, I'm I'm pleased to have, have, have contributed to bringing a more accessible language to mm. the beer industry. But I think the problem is, is that most people are always just going to really know me as the woman who stands up and says, fuck sexism, fuck yeah. racism, fuck homophobia. Um, yeah, there's something, <laughs> yeah, there's something to be said for being known as that person as well. Yeah. Which is which is fine. And, um, but it does, it's it sort of, it, I sometimes feel like, that does overshadow mm-hmm. a lot of the other very good work that I've done. But as you say, I, again, that's something I wouldn't change for the world and I ain't backing down from that in a, in a hurry. Yeah. And I think that, I think that that, I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting because it is sort of the thing that I think you're known for. I think as someone who's, who is outspoken and has been, I mean, in doing some research for this, for this interview, this isn't something, you know, a lot of folks have come to, to talking about uh, what are some people are calling the reckoning or these you know, the various issues with either racism or misogyny or transphobia or a whole host of other issues this industry has that I think a lot of folks recognize 
haven't really ever talked about it until recent years. And going back, okay. you we're going back more than a decade for you that I can find online where you are, you know, it might be, I mean, BrewDog has been and is one that we will talk about, but, you know, BrewDog is going back more than a decade. I can find, you know, you're calling out various things that they've done, uh, you know, plenty of other brewers, whether it's labels or marketing or just their general, you know, general behavior, you know, you've been okay. doing, you've been doing that for a very long time, but I, I get the, you are known for that. And I, it is, and I hadn't really thought about how it does in effect overshadow or in, in some means kind of overshadow your written work. How do, I mean, how do you mm. feel about that? Um, sometimes it can be really emotionally exhausting because you put, it's certainly when, when there's been a confluence of things like there has been, um, obviously for many people. And this is just me talking about my personal experience in terms of how I felt about it. It's not, there's no, there's no particular woe is me here per se, but it, it has made me very sad. So for example, really wanting to write Little Book of Lager to get people to understand that, that, that lager is mm -hmm. more than just, you know, yellow and fizzy and, yeah. and, and sort of saying, saying for example and i've said this for years and years is that the like, phrases top fermenting and bottom fermenting are about as much use as a chocolate fire guard and um, really you know lager isn't a style if you want to understand lager you have to understand that lager isn't a style it's a process mm -hmm. and that actually when you are when you are dealing with these beers there is a much bigger world out there than you think that there, there is and let me take you by the hand and walk you through it and it's a beautiful book it's a really pretty mm -hmm. little, like, like yeah. gorgeous book. But of course, that's the kind of book that needs impulse purchases in bookstores, in gift shops, in, you know, that it sits by the till. It does that. And it came out in the pandemic yeah. and it tanked. Yeah. For, for, you know, the sales tanked. Little, little book of craft beer, it continues to sell, you know, and that's, that's three years old. So it, it's, you know, that and also Ultimate Book of Craft Beer coming out as well when I, I just, I couldn't do a launch party and that's yeah. so sad for me. Yeah. I love having, I love having book launch parties. They're the best. I mean, I love to show off. There's slightly that, but it's also, <laughs> I love having so many people. I love an door in a room, just re really enjoying and also meeting each other because yeah. quite often you don't get the opportunity to put like, all the pieces of your life in the room at one time. No, short of short of you know weddings or things along those lines. Yeah, when you get to yeah. bring all these different spheres of your life together as someone who has done a couple of book of you know book launches, like they're fantastic. But mm. you know, with and I and I love that you're talking about lager beer. You know, it's obviously a huge passion of mine, has been for for very, very long time. And I want to talk about it, but the UK's relationship to lager is I think a little different than it is in the States. How would you describe you know, what role lager plays in, in the UK beer market? Well, it, 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 it fulfills a few different ones. I mean, you've got your very uh, blue collar aspect to it, mm -hmm. for want of a better phrase. Um, so you have got your, you know, working men's lower ABV, like cold, fizzy, chuck it back at the end of a, of a mm -hmm. hard day. You know, lawn lawnmower beers. Yeah. Um, then you've got uh, there's there's always been a sort of a slightly statusy brandy thing for what are known as the premium lagers. Excuse me. So they're kind of things. I mean, not so much now. Stella Artois was kind of the thing that that, that really sort of kicked that off. 
but things like Peroni um, and th- things that ha- th- things that have a brand cachet yeah. attached to them. Then obviously you've got your um, craft, not crafts, uh, things like Camden. So, which is, you know, the, the cool and the funky and the trendy mm-hmm. and all that sort of stuff. And then you've got some fantastic, like, craft niche artisan lager producers who people just snap everything up from every yeah. time they end. And, and, and certainly, um, you know, beer geeks are coming massively full circle. Um, I think in, in some ways, I think it's certainly the more of the sort of first second wave who are much more into mm-hmm. it interestingly yeah. it looks more and more like the the people who are coming to beer now are either going like with the really traditional styles that are being brewed here again or uh, hazy juices yeah because that's the world over we have been talking you know you know in the you know beer writers people who love beer have been talking about the about lager coming back about lager you know this is lager's year this is lager's year and it's been lager's year for the last 15 years just like just like your favorite you know your favorite soccer team your favorite baseball team whatever it's our year it's our year. it's you know as a longtime chicago cubs fan it was almost it was never our year for for decades and decades until it finally was is lager going to have its time or is it going to be one of those things that's always off in the distance, that shining star that we're racing towards, but never seem to get any closer to? I think, I think that the, the issue is, is that, that lager is so fractured. So for example, even when we keep on saying about lagers, lagers year, lagers year, lagers year, the thing is, is that most people have a Hellas yeah. now. And mm-hmm. I guarantee you it's in their top three bestsellers. Yeah. And I think we've just, we've somehow latched on to the idea that if it's not this beautiful, <laughs> whatever you want to say about Kolsch, I still think it's a lager. Um, yeah, it, it's a Kolsch, it's a Hellas. Or hang on a minute. Yeah, but I want to vote for an out beer. What about a dunkel? Yeah, it's just mm-hmm. you know, it, it, it's. Yeah. I think that there's um, there's too much of that kind of, and also their commissions that you get right. It's like, what's going to be the biggest trend? It's like, please be lager, please be lager, please yeah. be lager. Um, <laughs> in some way, people are trying to make something self fulfilling because they want they want to write an article to say that that lager is going to be the next trend in the hope that more breweries will brew good lager. Yeah, I mean, I, I I'm happy to be commissioned to write that article every year, and I think I think a couple of them come out every year. <laughs> You mentioned you mentioned uh, hazy and juicy IPAs, mm-hmm. and you know, for for those of us in the U.S., you know, we look at you know the U.K. beer market, and you know, we're often thinking about you know traditional beers, you know, cask beer, uh, Fuller's, ESB, you know, London Pride, things, you know, Timothy Taylor's, these these classic style, these classic beers. What you know, what are their role? Those roles of those classic styles in the modern day you know, UK beer scene and, you know, can cask and, and those styles survive, you know, the March, the, you know, the modernity March of, of hazy IPAs and juicy. It's not so much the beer styles. that's the problem. It's the state of the pub industry. That's the issue. Yeah. So, um, which is an extremely long and complicated and significantly more problematic than we've got anywhere near the amount of time here for. Um, but in reality, the issue is, is that it's actually about the fact that 
training and care and understanding and resources and margins mean that cask beer has to be a labor of love right and pubs are getting hit from every freaking angle right now whether that's staff shortages whether it's brexit whether it's um whether it's covid whether it's energy rises whether it's utility but other utility bills whether it's taxation whether it's food costs whether it, i mean it's just the hospitality industry is getting fucked hard yeah. Yeah. right now and and that's that's really problematic and then if, and then sort of obviously you put on top of that a product which will only last for three days if it's been tapped in the main mm-hmm. um yeah you know it can it, you have to pull through every morning properly you, you know it can be problematic can turn cannot be ready cannot have dropped and if you're not a master Sullivan then yeah. You know, all these all of these things are things to juggle. So all of those things are, are problematic. It's something that I've been saying for years. I, I cannot understand why camera doesn't have like put so much of its resources instead of fighting for stupid crap like a penny off the pine, um, which in the long run means nothing to anybody. Certainly doesn't make a hole in the exchequer. Mm-hmm. Um is that actually what they should be doing is they should be running extremely concerted and extreme either free or very very cheap beer seller training mm-hmm. courses that's and and that for me would would be a much better use of their time but anyway can't fix everything um so <laughs> <laughs> and i might not be right but i do feel quite strongly about that one um but yeah i mean that's it, it Carscale wasn't facing any re- more real danger from from modern keg beer than it than it was from big breweries like ABI buying yep. up tap handles. Anyway, the, the problem, the only problem that I would say that they are facing, and this is definitely an issue, is that where some of the big players have bought up taps, they have actually demand they, they have basically said and get rid of the cask. Mm-hmm. And, and that's that's a huge problem. And it's something that I was really angry about when they um, a bunch of politicians got in, got disappeared up their own fundaments about changing some legislation about um, we have this really weird system of either tenancies, leases managed or freehold for pubs here. And tenancies and leases have been being screwed by the pub companies for a long time, in mm-hmm. my opinion. And that when a what has turned out to be a completely bloody useless, by the way, review system was put in and the right to appeal against market rent only and not being tied for their beer purchases. Um, what they failed to put in was. But you cannot have people come in and buy up taps. Yeah. That should be, I mean, I know in certain states that's illegal, so pay to play, pay mm-hmm. to pour. Um, and, of course, the minute they didn't do that. Yeah. And that, that's, that's, that's going to be problematic for cars going forward as well. Lalbert Farmhouse is a truly innovative hybrid beer yeast selected to make hassle-free Cezanne beers and so much more. Not genetically modified, Lalbert Farmhouse eliminates the risk of cross-contamination that comes with a diastatic yeast while retaining all characteristics that make Saison yeast so attractive. Flavor, aroma profile, and high attenuation. Go to lalamanbrewing.com for more information on how Lalamans Farmhouse and Saison offerings 
can help your business. You, I know, have participated in a lot of collaboration beers with a lot of breweries, uh, including Fuller's and New Holland and Brasserie de la Seine, among plenty of others. How yep. did these projects come to be? Pals. Mm. Quite often. But I mean, I'd, I'd say, I, I think if I look down my collab list, I, I would say that I think there's only been like three or four breweries where I haven't known people beforehand, but I've known somebody who's known and it's been done for a specific event or yep. I've got into the collaboration with a friend to go and brew with this other person who's a friend of theirs. Um, you know, so it's just been, it's just been spitballing. It's also, I think because, because I'm known for, what I do putting together flavors with food quite often I, I I get phone calls from brewers saying I really want to use this in a beer mm-hmm. but I don't know how to go about it and I know you've done a beer similar here so well, why don't we do that together all right then that'll be fun let's do that um or I've had an idea for a beer and I and I know that for example somebody is really good at brewing that style and I know them and I want to, and I want to go, and I re, I've got an idea for a beer. It's like, it's there, it's burning a mm. hole in the middle of my head and I want to get it out. Um, and I'm just like, right, okay, like that, this is the bit that, that concerns me. Um, anything with numbers concerns me. I've got terrible dyscalculia. <laughs> I mean, awful. So um, like the, the calculations in brewing are an extremely stressful time for me. So nearly every collab that I do, when I'm using spices and things like that, I freak people the hell out because I do it. I do it all by touch and smell okay. in the brewing process, and you can just see people <laughs> just going, "I don't like this." How much was that again? Uh, let's see how much a handful weighs. That much. Yeah, I'm sure that's mm-hmm. easy. That's easy to put in the brew log. It just it's it's a Melissa, <laughs> Melissa's paw full it's of a, like, Melissa paw full. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the late, late the late Roger Ryman was my was my favourite one. God rest his soul. I missed the guy horribly. Um, and we were we were brewing for the first time. Uh, I, he said, "Will you come down to Cornwall and brew on this?" They'd Heath Robinson together this this little kit, and had actually even built so St Austell um, ferments in slate squares mm. still. So they'd even built a proper old fashioned slate square open fermenter and it's i swear to god the saison that we brewed it's still the prettiest foam i've ever seen in my life i'm sorry i'm gonna sneeze <laughs> oh i think anyway <laughs> oh it's one of those no <laughs> oh phantom sneezes are oh, bastards anyway so um so yeah so i was just like and he said so he got all of the raw ingredients so it was it was um one of the things i always do is i try to uh, find a local hook to hang it on, whether that's something that we can go and forage, whether it's something that the area is known for, whether it's a biscuit or a bread or a cake or a, mm-hmm. or a local dish or whatever it is. I try and try and find something to hang my hat on. There's a biscuit called a Cornish fairing, which has ginger and nutmeg. Um, and I found that when you brew with both ginger and nutmeg um, and cinnamon, that actually adding um zest is a really good way to make the ginger really sing out so we had some so we had lemon lime and orange zest in there as well and it was a bit roger fell in love with the beer um and his wife 
particularly Tony really loved the beer and they were just like, right, this is great. And then not long afterwards, um, sorry, that was, and he said, but I, but as we were brewing it, he kept on handing me these bags of things and he kept on going, and how much are we putting in? I went, I don't know. We'll just <laughs> stick it in until it smells good, right? And he's like, I don't like this, Melissa. I don't like this at all. Now to set the scene, Roger was gigantic. He was huge. He was like six foot six. He didn't give up rowing until he was like 52. Mm. And when I'm talking about, I'm talking about rowing on the sea. Yeah. Oof. Yeah. I mean, he was huge, absolutely huge. But he was just standing there, like almost, like you could see him just having this complete meltdown. He's like, Melissa, you need to tell me how much is going in before it goes in. It's like, all we do is weigh the bag afterwards. Then we'll know it will be fine. It's like, I don't like this. I was like, well, go and stand over there then. <laughs> I actually made him go and stand. Like, this is, from this me, is not you... usually how collaborations work, at least it not was... here in the States. In the States, usually they'll invite somebody in. They'll like have a general concept of what they want to do. Maybe have some emails or texts ahead of time. Then they show up. They, they drink a little bit. They sit over in the corner and that and they let the uh they let the staff at the brewery you know handle it here it sounds yeah, like you go I, in and and just cause the brewers to cry yeah that's been known <laughs> not deliberately um but yeah i, I kind of go in and freak them out no i mean i there's no point in me going and doing collaboration right i i much as i kind of don't get that approach i also do get that approach listen these guys have lifted enough malt bags they have slogged their guts out enough they've mm -hmm. burnt their arms and filled their boots and god knows what enough look they know what they're doing i don't always know what i'm doing every time i go to a brewery there is a new piece of kit or there's a new way that somebody's laid some pipes or there's something to to, to find out and you know i i I have a relatively otherwise fairly sedentary job because I'm sitting on my ass behind mm -hmm. so, so it's like, this is a day out for me, right? Sure. Um, and I like digging out the mash tun and I like, I like getting involved. And mm -hmm. I, I mean, listen, it's like a freaking spa day. You get, you get a workout, <laughs> you get a steam facial, all, all of those, all those antioxidants when you sort out the, out the hot back or the kettle or the, you know, all these, all these things are good for you. Um, and, you know, you've got to earn your beer calories at the end of the day. So <laughs> it's all good. I like it. You are one of probably one of the best known writers about the interplays, as you've been talking about, between beer and food and flavor. Um, and I love listening to you and reading you know, your work on, on flavor. What was the first experience that you can recall that made you just sit up straight and appreciate, you know, the, the ability of beer to match with food or to be useful with food? I don't know. I really don't know. I have struck you silent. You have, dear God, man. This is a first. <laughs> I, I couldn't put. I couldn't. I couldn't put a finger. I'm like the minute I started really enjoying beer, I'd already started really getting into cooking. So they just sort of went quite naturally together. Do you know what I think it was? I, 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 can, I can tell you why I started thinking more seriously about it, but I can't give you kind of that thunderbolt mm -hmm. moment. Is that I love having a beer when I'm cooking. Okay. And as you're tasting things as you're going along and 
and I've got um, I've got taste memory. So if I think hard enough, I can tell you. Or if I if I have something, I can go, oh, that reminds me of when yeah. I was. Da-da. So, for example, I can remember that we were drinking um, the Henniker dark lager at the Mexican place and it went brilliantly with the um with the brisket that they had there so I can remember that Mm -hmm. and that's that's funny because I have a similar thing with taste memory and have that similar I have that exact memory I I I share I'm not sure I could have it's rattling around in there and I don't know that I could have brought it to the fore like you just did but I remember that yeah so that so when I'm when I'm drinking a specific beer, even if it's not the right beer, I can sort of go through the mental rolodex and say, actually, do you know what would slot in here, or would elevate this, or would possibly round this out a little bit? And and I'm I'm really lucky that that's that's a that's a, a gift that I have, but it has to be worked at because sometimes your automatic assumption is so shockingly awfully wrong mm-hmm. um, that you just, you just go, Oh my God, I, 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 the self doubt is, <laughs> is real here. Um, and, and sometimes you just get, you know, you just, you just screw things up, but I've got, I'm, I'm lucky now. And obviously the, the database of beer flavors I have in my, mm-hmm. in my brain is rather large. Um, so that that sort of really stands me in good stead for that. I can't, yeah, I really can't remember an epiphany there. I, I can tell you when I I I got more adventurous, and I started trying weirder and weirder or, or, or perceptually mm-hmm. weirder pairings. Is my friend Chris, um, who at the time was head brewer at Bristol Beer Factory. Um he went into the cheese shop near where I had a, a tasting business at the time and, uh, and, and came back also with a, with a bottle of bone mariage parfait. And he bought this cheese over called Beanley blue, which is still mm. my favorite blue cheese. And he says, you've got to try these two things together. And it's like, Chris, it's going to be like a barnyard has humped my mouth. <laughs> no. <laughs> No, this is a terrible. He said, you've got to trust me here. Melissa. it's like, Chris, I love you, but okay, you've got to be prepared that I may actually spit this out. And you know my opinions on spitting. It's one of the most disgusting things in the world. Right, okay, cool. And I ate cheese. I drank the beer. I looked at Chris. I held him by his cheeks. I planted a massive kiss on his forehead <laughs> and went, I was so wrong and I could not love you more. And that was when I went, right, okay, let's try everything. Even if it seems crazy, let's try everything. Let's poach some codro in Gers. God, that smells terrible. God, it tastes amazing. <laughs> yeah, and, and sometimes you've just got to, like, you've really got to just kind of hang it all out there and just go, do you know what? Let's, let's, let's give this a go. This has been Andy Crouch, and thanks for listening to the Beer Edge Podcast. My partner John Hall and I work hard to produce interesting podcasts and other content for you, our dear listeners. And this is where I ask you to give us a little hand. We've got some cool merch for sale at BeerEdge.com. Buy a shirt or a mug and help support independent journalism. And if you're itching for more beer content, 
Check out John's podcast, Drink Beer, Think Beer, with new episodes every Wednesday. It's a good listen on your commute or if you just need to take a break. We're on the socials at The Beer Edge. And if you want to be on the show, or if you want to sponsor the show, or if you know the perfect guest, please drop me a line. My email is andy at beeredge.com, and my DMs are open everywhere at Beerscribe. We're back with Lalaman's Avi Shavitz, and we're talking about Lalbrew Farmhouse, the company's hybrid Saison-style yeast. Avi, can you tell me more about the aroma and flavor characteristics of the Lalbrew Farmhouse? As part of the, the pedigree of this yeast, some of its ancestry really kind of shines in that it's also quite estery too, which is nice. It kind of helps balance some of those peppery notes with a little bit more fruity character. I've heard it described as everything from from honey to fresh hay, uh, you know, kind of like that smell that you get um, after a fresh spring rainfall in in a field uh, that has just harvested hay. That was that was. That was something that one of our, our trial brewers ex- described to me. I thought that, yeah, that's a really good description. Um, and I love it when when people give me descriptors like that. You do still get those nice hints of pepper, banana, clove, like kind of like all those flavors and aromas that people really look for in a saison. For almost 50 years, Balman has been passionate about brewing and helping brewers. With decades of industry experience, an extensive support network, and strong technical expertise, Lalamont Brewing is positioned to help your brewery achieve its growth and quality goals. Beyond unparalleled global technical support and expertise, Lalamont offers an extensive range of products, services, and education. Whether you're a startup, a global leader in beer production, or anywhere in between, Lalamont has something for you. Contact Lalamont today for more information.